This is the third class in our series, How the Bible Came to Be, on Formation of the New Testament. In our first class, we saw that the process by which the Old Testament came to be took place over a period of centuries. You'll notice in the notes a comment. I probably should have made this in the, the first class. It says, note on the Samaritan canon. Actually, the Samaritans, uh, somewhat like the Sadducees, believed in the Torah, but not the rest of Tanakh. So the Samaritan Bible were the books Genesis to Deuteronomy, but they did not regard as scriptural, as canonical, anything else. And as you may know, even then, they seem to have tweaked the law a bit. For example, in making one of the Ten Commandments that thou shalt worship God on Mount Gerizim. By combining two others, they were able to keep the total at ten. Well, the Old Testament came together, and that was finished. That is, the books had all been created around 400 B.C. And yet more books were generated in the intertestamental period. And this is what we looked on in our second class. Let me add another note, something I didn't cover. And that's the book of First Enoch. First Enoch is eschatological. Eschatology has to do with the end of the world. Things related to the end of time. And it's a book that was very popular among the Jews. It's even referred to and quoted in the New Testament Epistle of Jude. No comment on that right now. But that book of First Enoch, which is written before Christ, maybe a hundred years before, something like that, was so popular that the Jews in Ethiopia actually included it in their Old Testament and still do. As far as I know, that's the only exception, uh, apart from the standard Apocrypha, which we find in the Orthodox and Catholic Bibles. Um, this is, uh, I guess, the, the third variation. If the first one is the typical 39-book canon used by Protestants, and that is, uh, in Ethiopia, uh, they have not only uh, the Protestant Old Testament books and the uh, Apocryphal books, but also First Enoch. Isn't that odd? Isn't that interesting? And yet, as I emphasize, the Old Testament spoke of a new covenant. The Old Testament ends in suspense, whether with the Hebrew ending in Chronicles, it's time to make a new beginning to go up to Jerusalem, or in the Greek order, uh, Malachi, where God himself is going to come and pay us a visit after he sends uh, a messenger of the covenant, a herald. And either way, we need a new covenant. And when there's a new covenant, there'll be more writing. In the previous class, I mentioned an article on the Apocrypha called Second Thoughts. And I would really encourage you to read that uh, article. It's probably only eight or ten pages, but it's highlights. Um, and, I, and I'm trying to frame the issues and to be very honest with, uh, you know, what do we do with these books, the Old Testament Apocrypha? All right. Today, we're looking at how the New Testament came to be. And I'm going to distinguish four phases in the process of canonization. We'll talk about the original writing, the dictation, and then we're going to discuss circulation and exchange, that is, as these documents were sent on to other communities than their originally intended recipients. Third, we'll look at the process of collection and then ratification. Now, our next class, we'll look at non-canonical, that is, apocryphal New Testament works. And, uh, you know, these, these books were, were popular, these apocryphal books. And I'll just give you a, a, a sneak peek. Uh, people were always wondering, what happened to Jesus in his early years? There's one 
a document called The Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It talks about the pranks that Jesus played when he was little, how hard he was to rein in, how he misused his powers. Although eventually he learned to stop being such an imp and to be obedient and use his powers for good. But even more popular than the Infancy Gospel of Thomas was the Infancy Gospel of James. And uh, this talks about, uh, uh, the, the, well, this is very much, uh, looks Mary, look great, it looks uh, uh, Joseph. Look, we're going to go into that next class. I'm going to share about the, the, the picture you get of Mary and Joseph in Infancy Gospel of Thomas and, in the, and the Gospel of, um, Infancy Gospel of James. But these books were second century, and they're very popular. Over a hundred copies of the Infancy Gospel of James survive, and uh, very familiar um, to Christians, and, and as you will see. And so when people tell me, you know, Douglas, there's a conspiracy. It's in the Vatican. They're preventing people, you know, from knowing what books were really in the Bible. That's just not true. Or these books were suppressed. The apocryphal works of the New Testament were no more suppressed than those of the Old Testament. They were very popular. It's just that they were never quoted from. They were never used as canonical. They're never used in church. That is, you didn't say, okay, today we're going to have a sermon that's going to be based on, you know, the Christians would say, it's going to be based on the infancy gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Peter. No such thing. We're going to cover that much more in the fourth class, but I, I just can't resist the opportunity to make that point that the apocryphal works were not suppressed. That, that's not right. People read them, and that's why we know about them, but they were not considered canonical. Their message was not... Um, no, it wasn't consistent enough with the apostolic message, the one that came from Jesus, nor was it viewed to be inspired in a way that would allow it to be in the canon. Okay. Dictation, circulation, collection, and ratification. Let's begin with dictation. You see, the first term in the notes is an unusual word, amanuensis. When amanuensis is a secretary, really a scribe, the writer the letter, and I could put writer in uh, quotes, in inverted commas, dictated what he was sharing, be it letter, gospel, acts, or apocalypse, and the amanuensis wrote it down. Now this is quite interesting because uh, if, if you go to seminaries, and I've studied at a number of seminaries, it's often said, oh, we don't think Peter could have written First Peter, it's not his style. Now, you don't decide authorship only on style, but I think we should consider this. You know, maybe it contains words that Peter would not have used, but maybe they were the words his amanuensis used. That is, Peter's dictating, he gives instructions, things are written, maybe suggestions are made, but eventually he approves of what's written. Remember Paul, you know, Paul was the most educated of the apostles, as, as far as we know. Even Paul used a secretary. Remember that verse, I, Tertius, who write this letter, you know, also send greetings? At the end of Paul's letters, he would sign off uh, in capital letters and give greetings to people he knew because he was very relational. But up until that point, the scribe had been doing the writing. Paul was educated, but he still dictated. That's just what you did. Maybe they had better penmanship. Maybe it was faster, or maybe it was more respected. I don't know. But you have amanuenses. And if I ask someone helping me, could you reply to that request and let me look at it before we send it? And maybe I got the draft back and I said, yeah, let me just add a sentence or two and maybe I'll change that. That doesn't sound like me very much. And, okay, that's good. Yeah, go ahead and send it. 
and I might even sign it without having necessarily written the whole thing myself. Do you see? But I approved it. So this, uh, the reality of the manuensis has potential to deal with a lot of problems in, in uh, criticism. Now, we tend to think one writer or dictator being taken down by the scribe producing one document and that document will be sent off wherever it was being dispatched, if it was letter or maybe shared with the community, if it was a, more of a community document. But why would there only be one copy? Now, I can't prove this, but certainly there were multiple copies of these uh, New Testament documents because they were considered with such respect. So once it was clear there was a demand for these, why wouldn't one person dictate and ten amanuenses write it down? Much more efficient. So I want you to use your imagination and think about these copies. Now you may say, well, where are all the copies? I mean, do we have a lot of manuscripts? You've heard there are more than 5,000 Greek manuscripts, partial or fragmentary. But there were certainly many more. We have to take account of history. When the Romans really turned against the church, and this is in the 2nd century and the 3rd century, there's this persecution. It goes all the way up until the early 300s. They attacked uh, buildings, which were starting to become common in the 300s, uh, but also the the church leaders, the bishops, and Bibles, which were burnt. I think they also burnt their bishops, but they burnt the Bibles. And so many more would have survived if they hadn't been confiscated and destroyed. Now, I hope that's useful to you. Well, in this period of dictation, documents are produced to meet local needs. If people in Corinth are confused about the resurrection, Greek philosophy is getting to them, you know, the Greeks thought the body was bad. It's just the prison house for the soul. Really, your spirit is the only thing that's important, and that's all that'll survive, and that's eternal. And, you know, those are very Greek ideas. Paul is correcting them. Who knows how many Corinthians were confused? But clearly, it was a matter of contention. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a long chapter. Isn't that the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians? This was a need. He's helping people to understand that the body does count. The body will be resurrected. So that's a specific need. A specific need, a particular need. In a moment, I want to explain why uh, that's significant. But just hold on. So the letters meet specific needs. In the case of Corinth, Paul receives a letter from them with many concerns, which he addresses from chapter 7 to 16. Uh, but he also responds to a report that he receives from Chloe's people. And those issues he responds to, issues of disunity, for example, or litigation in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. But, but the Gospels also are written to meet specific needs. Most scholars put the Gospel of Mark as the oldest, and that they think it was put together in the 60s. It might have been right before or maybe right during the Jewish war with Rome, the one that ended in the destruction of the temple and really radically redefined Judaism from, from then on. Um, the temple was destroyed, you probably know this, in the year 70 AD. Matthew, who makes use of Mark, uh, he uh, rewrites Mark as Luke rewrites Mark, and adds some things and makes some difference. Who knows, they may even have known each other. Matthew's written a little bit later. It seems to be written after 70. And that's a time when Jews are no longer considered as a sect. I mean, Christians are no longer considered as a sect of Judaism. But Christians are more on their own. 
and they're not in the same level of dialogue with the Jews that they were up to the year 70, there's a lot of tension between the groups. And that's reflected in Matthew. So Matthew's probably written later. You know, generally speaking, the letters came first. Some would place James very early. I'm tempted to do that, but I honestly don't know. But I have, uh, and a number of scholars have good reasons for putting Galatians as the first document, probably the first document, and not only the first of Paul's letters, dating it to 48 AD. Well, there's some late letters, particularly the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Um, But most, the letters are written early, the Gospels are written later. So just generally speaking, the letters come first, then the Gospels. So in this phase of dictation, things are written. It doesn't drop out of heaven. The New Testament is written document by document. 27 documents written over a period of about 50 years or so. Meeting local issues and needs. And the Gospels met local needs, just as the letters did. Even the book of Revelation meets specific needs, right? It's sent to seven churches. Um, Persecution's about to heat up. He's encouraging them to be faithful and to understand that ultimately Christ is the emperor. He's the ultimate authority and sovereign, not the Roman uh, emperor. Specific needs for all these. Now let's talk about the second phase. Circulation and exchange. So, Corinth has 1 Corinthians. Now, as you know, they have more than 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians itself mentions an earlier letter Paul wrote to those guys. And that's in 1 Corinthians 5.9. But we don't have that. In fact, you can uh, easily distinguish four Corinthian letters in the New Testament. And why would Paul have stopped at that? Why wouldn't he have written a number of letters to the Corinthians? In fact, you know, Paul visits a lot of cities... We can tell from the book of Acts and from his letters. But we don't have letters to all those places. I think it's a pretty good bet he wrote letters everywhere. His method of follow-up was a personal visit. If he couldn't make it, he would send a representative, like an apostolic uh, emissary, someone like Silas or Timothy. And um, the third method was to send a letter. And I think he often sent multiple letters. But we know from comments he makes in his epistles that there are a number of earlier letters that we do not have in the Bible. So let's say Paul wrote a hundred letters, and maybe that's a conservative estimate. I don't know. We only have 13 in the New Testament. What happens in the other 87? Now, if I had said, imagine Paul wrote 20, and you'd say, yeah, where are the missing seven? But when I put it this way, you know, where are the missing 87? You're less uh, likely to jump to some conclusion. Yeah, my New Testament needs 87 more documents. When really what I'm doing is making a point. The scriptures serve the purpose. Inspiration is not identical with truth. Inspiration has to do with function. It has to do with message and need and, and what God is doing, what's, what he's accomplishing. And the letters of Paul, the 13 letters of Paul, are ample. More could turn up. I doubt there'd be anything new. It might be something interesting, but there'd be nothing new in terms of doctrine. So many letters are circulated. But remember, uh, things tend to get lost, especially if they're not the most popular or copied. And in those bonfires the Romans had later, I think a lot of these things simply disappeared. Well, what do you mean by circulation? I mean that a letter would have been sent on to another city, sometimes deliberately. Sometimes it was actually the instruction of the apostles. Or because another city heard, oh, 
That letter to the Corinthians is so great. It has, they had no chapter numbers, but bear with me. You know, 16 chapters, and he, he dealt with so many issues. And so maybe there's a church nearby. Maybe it's the church in Sancria. Um, or maybe it's a church in a different part of Greece. Uh, maybe the church um, uh, way up north in the Macedonian area of Berea. You know, we don't have a letter to the Bereans, do we? But there's a church there. So maybe they hear, and they get a copy of Corinthians. And who knows, maybe they make another copy, or maybe the Corinthians make multiple copies. But there are lots of copies. Things are being circulated. They're being exchanged. And this is even a strategy. Let me read from Ephesians 1.1. And I'm going to read it from the oldest versions of Ephesians. And you may think I'm leaving something out if you follow along in the text, but let me read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I read from the Revised Standard Version. And one reason I read from that version is that it doesn't give in to the pressure of including those words um, at Ephesus. Now, if you went to the NIV, which is very popular these days, it says to the saints in Ephesus, but the original doesn't seem to have had those words. For example, the oldest document of Ephesians, at least complete document that I've seen, um, is the Chester Beatty uh, document. It's from the 2nd century. It might be from the year 200, or it might be a little bit earlier. And when I saw that first, um, it, it was actually very handy because the, the text was open to Ephesians 1. I looked at it, and sure enough, those words in Ephesus are missing. Now, why would they be missing? Well, let me give you one other piece of evidence, and maybe you can figure out. Paul, as I said, very relational man. He ends his letters normally with greetings to different people, because these are places he's been to. Not always, but that's his norm. But not in Ephesians. Ephesians, there's nothing that's really directly personal. I mean, he, he, he refers to the, the Christians from a Gentile background, and he speaks to them as a group. He's not really referring to people in Ephesus directly. So what's going on? Well, I think he wrote this letter to multiple churches. Either it simply said to the saints who are faithful, or it said to the saints in, and then he left a blank, and then you'd write in the name. You know, maybe it went first to a nearby city. Let's say it went to Smyrna. There actually is a letter written to the Smyrnians in the second century, but it's not an inspired letter. It's by Ignatius, um, a leader in Antioch. So maybe he wrote to Smyrna, and then Smyrnians uh, rubbed out the word Smyrna, and they wrote in the word um, Epheso. They wrote so that it, it now read to the saints in Ephesus. And then they sent it down to Ephesus, since it's not that far away. You see, so these things would have been, uh, some of them would have been sent to multiple peoples. Not just passed around because they were useful, but because they were more like circular letters. So think of the book of Revelation. Revelation, of course it's for all of us. Anyone who reads it gets some kind of a blessing. But in Revelation 1.11, uh, the instruction is, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now, most people think seven is a symbolic number. right? It's a number of fullness completion. Truth is, there are quite a few other cities 
in that immediate area where there were congregations. We even read about several of them in the New Testament itself. But that only mentions, uh, Revelation 1.1 only mentions churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. But there were others. But it's sent to the seven, and it's been suggested this is a male root or something like that. So it would have gone to one, first to Ephesus, and then second to nearby Smyrna, and then might have been sent up to Pergamum, and maybe a copy sent over to Thyatira, and so forth. So this is what we mean by exchange, circulation. I'll give you one last example from the New Testament, and that's from the end of Colossians. And Colossians is written by Paul... It seems it's very similar to Ephesians. Many scholars think that um, Ephesians kind of started with Colossians, made some changes, wrote on. That, that could well be. But let me read Colossians 4. He gives greetings to different people and in the final verses. And then in verse 16, When this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. Oh! So, Paul was telling him, send this on to Laodicea. Well, a few weeks ago, um, our annual biblical tour was in Colossae, which has not been excavated yet. We were on the mound and walking among the ruins, and we uh, were in Laodicea the following day. They're not really that far apart. So, he wants the Laodiceans to benefit from Colossians. But there's more. Paul continues... And see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. What is that letter to the Laodiceans? There was an apocryphal, very late, uh, certainly a false, you know, forged letter uh, pretending to be from Paul to Laodiceans. That's not the one. Some would say perhaps it's uh, Philemon, or maybe Philemon was sent to Colossians with Colossians. When you compare the two letters, you'll see they're very similar. I don't really know. But Paul's instructions are to share these things around. Maybe they're going through similar issues. But in time, especially as the apostles were dying off, people were thinking, you know, that was a really useful gospel that was written. Or those letters really met needs, and we're seeing that history is repeating itself. Let's dig that up. Let's share that around. And so things are shared. You know, the good news uh, spreads by word of mouth. I think there was a certain word of mouth dynamic with the documents of the New Testament. And so things were shared. The move was from the particular then to the general. So, maybe the Corinthians are struggling with the concept of resurrection, but biblical teaching on resurrection is helpful to a lot of people. So, something may have been originally intended for the Corinthians, but in time, because it's valuable, because it's practical, it ends up being shared universally in the church. Of course, there are some issues of interpretation. You know, uh, For example, in the New Testament, you have the practice of foot washing. And women, widows, were not allowed to receive compensation from the church unless they were known to have been very hospitable and washed people's feet. What do you do with that? Um, he required that. It was normative. I mean, people wore sandals. The roads were unimproved. You know, they might have bit, had stones, paving stones, but they could still be quite dirty. And you walk on it long enough, you need to clean your feet. I mean, you may say, I need to clean my feet today. Well, please go ahead and do it. <laughs> but nothing like it was back then. So should we still have foot washing? Because it seems very common in the first century. I mean, even Jesus washes feet. 
Some churches don't really know what to do. They say, okay, well, we should do it. Let's do it. Okay, let's do it once a year. We'll have a foot washing ceremony. Yeah, but back then, that was just a part of normal courtesy, normal household uh, uh, generosity to, to the guest. So how do you know what parts were local and very specific or even culturally specific? What parts um, still apply today? You see how this issue of circulation exchange borders on another issue, which is interpretation? And that's not what I'm talking about here. But I want you to think about that. Because people's New Testament started out very slim. So let's say you're in Ephesus, and you, you get a copy of this letter to the Ephesians. Once it gets around to the Ephesians, oh, okay, you've got a copy. Great, you make a copy. And then you hear, oh, there's a similar letter. Now you have Ephesians and Colossians. Maybe you've got Philemon. And a few years later, the Gospel of Mark is written. And maybe it seems like there's a bit of issue with Judaizing, that, that issue, um, false teaching in, in Ephesus. And so you understand, you know, didn't Paul write a letter about 12 years ago to the Galatians? Okay, let's get the copy of Galatians. So you've got your New Testament, which is not really very thick, really just a few pages. It's not a book yet. But think about this. It's growing. Circulation and exchange will lead to the question, where do you keep all these documents? And increasingly, they were kept together. One other thing, in this period, what was exchanged were not only apostolic documents, but oral traditions and other written sources that were not scriptural. Oral traditions, and there's good evidence that many of the stories of Jesus and words of Christ circulated orally before they were written down. And then the written sources that are sometimes quoted, but they don't actually appear in a gospel. These are called the agrapha, as it actually means unwritten things, but the fact that they were written down um, by later church fathers, I guess, means it's kind of a misnomer. But you have something even like this in Acts 20, verse 35. Paul quotes one of the Beatitudes of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But that saying is not in the Gospels. And there are actually a number of sayings like that that you can find in the New Testament and sometimes in outside sources. So this is a period where oral traditions are circulating, written sources, and of course the official uh, apostolic letters. And also reminiscences. Think of this. In the middle of the second century, there's a fellow named Polycarp. And Polycarp is a church leader in Smyrna, which is near Ephesus. And he was a disciple of John, that is the Apostle John, whom he knew. Polycarp is martyred in Rome um, when he's an old man, he's in his 80s. And he knows, he knew John, of course, John knew Jesus. So you've got just two links. Uh, there are others, other church fathers who knew Polycarp. So around the year 200, there are a number of people around who themselves did not know the Apostles, but they knew those who followed the Apostles. If I can put it this way, they knew the disciples of the apostles. That's amazing. Even in the case of Polycarp, he never knew Jesus in the flesh, but he knew someone who did know Jesus. And so these memories are still very fresh. It's a period um, where some things are in flux, but everything's being circulated, exchanged, and that's the second phase. Let's go to the third, the period of collection. Now things are being collected together. Uh, they're not multiple Gospels, they're four and in the first half of the second century, that comes together. That comes together. The fourfold gospel. 
In fact, later in the century, there will be theological reasons given why. It could be for and only for. You may say, well, Douglas, what about the uh, infancy gospel of James? Or later, the gospel of Thomas? Or the infancy gospel of Thomas? Or gospel of Peter? Yeah, but these are all generations and generations after the authentic gospels. It's a fourfold gospel. And again, these are the gospels that are quoted in the church. So the evidence is that they are collected. The order, I wouldn't worry so much about the order. I remember one time I was looking through an ancient manuscript um, of the New Testament. And in that Bible, John was the first gospel. Yeah, so the order doesn't really matter. Um, it was it was fun because I looked at it and and this is at a university library and, and no one had checked it out or looked at it for oh I mean ten years or something. Uh, I looked at it. It's quite amazing because this manuscript was um, only it was from maybe around the year 400 A.D. 500 A.D. Yeah, about 500 A.D. But the order is different. In fact, a, a very common order for the New Testament books early on was Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or something like that, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. Then you have Acts, and then James. So Acts was very often, and this is still the case in, in uh, Bibles based on the Eastern order, like in Russia, you have James, and then 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude, what we call the universal or Catholic epistles. You have those before the letters of Paul, and then often Hebrews is placed right after the letters of Paul, very interesting. But I'll tell you, the order itself is not uh, inspired. The order doesn't matter. So, things are collected, but there's still a little bit of fluidity, but more and more communities are getting the whole collection. I mentioned the collection of the letters of Paul. Um, I think that's significant. Uh, the oldest collection of his letters is Papyrus 46. But there, there are a number from the 2nd century, and there are certainly a number of partial manuscripts from the 2nd century as well. And some say even from the late 1st century, but I think the jury's still out on that. Did everyone accept this? No. There's a, a well-known heretic who rejected the God of the Old Testament and anything having to do with the Torah, and that was Marcion. And this is in the 140s A.D., and he wants to shrink down the Bible. Well, he wants to get rid of the Old Testament and the Torah, for sure. Anything that was Jewish, um, he was against. The, the, the God of the Jews, he was against that. But his New Testament included ten of Paul's letters. Not First and Second Timothy and Titus. Why would Marcion refuse to accept the pastoral epistles? Maybe because they talk about marriage? And Marcion uh, was against that? But Marcion's Bible is quite small. In fact, he only accepts one gospel, the Gospel of Paul. It's actually the Gospel of Luke. But he thought of it as being the Paul that Gospel preached. Now, Luke, of course, begins in a very Old Testament kind of way. So he apparently expurgated all the offending passages from Luke. And in his new, you know, I guess more condensed, uh, compact version of Luke, and, and with his ten letters of Paul, that's his New Testament. It's still a collection. So there was this impulse to shrink the canon. Others wanted to add things. And it's not because they necessarily wanted more books, but they thought, you know, we're going to write our own Gospels, and, and a lot of it's very esoteric. We're going to discuss that in the fourth lesson in our series, uh, particularly what was written by the Gnostics. Gnosticism was the major 
second century heresy. And we'll, we'll talk about it again in the next class. But they generated quite a bit of literature. It was never in the Bible. It was never quoted as scripture. It was not used in the churches. Um, it's not consistent with the Apostles' Creed, for example. But in some way, I think when you have people like Marcion saying, well, let's cut this out, then you would create in Orthodox Christians a desire to justify the choices that they've made. So the Gnostics, like Marcion, cause the church to think carefully what it's doing as the New Testament comes together. You know, Joe can't just write any old gospel last Tuesday and then pretend that Peter wrote it or it's something we missed from Thomas, you know, Jesus' twin brother. You can't do that. Uh, things have to be documented. There has to be more proof. So actually, I think the, the false teachers serve an important function because they cause Christians to think critically about what's in the New Testament and why. Okay, a few more things in this section. Justin Martyr, uh, the Samaritan philosopher who was, who was executed for his faith in mid-century. In his first apology, he writes about the memoirs of the apostles. I wonder what that means. He says the churches would, would come together and they would read from the memoirs of the apostles. Most scholars think that that's referring to the Gospels. But this was studied in church. We're not talking about apocryphal works. We're talking about what is legit. Irenaeus, a few decades later, talks about the fourfold gospel and why it must be just the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a canon list of the New Testament called the Muratorian Canon from about 180 that includes the books of the New Testament, at least almost all of them. The canon is somewhat fragmentary. Then, in the early 200s, Origen, um, he was a brilliant uh, Bible scholar from Alexandria in Egypt, um, and he uh, talks about the books of the New Testament. He excludes four letters, James, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, but the other 23 documents he has no question about at all. These people are very honest about what they believe should be in there. And we're going to talk more about the um, next class we're going to talk more about the things that didn't quote make it in actually they were never in there but I want to uh, share something about canon well, well, let me go ahead and first share something about exclusion when people say something's been excluded from the canon what, that, what does that really mean? there are two kinds of exclusion let's say you're going into a party and there are bouncers now I don't go to parties where they have bouncers but I think I've seen this on TV so you're excluded, you're not admitted, you're not allowed in. That's like the apocryphal works. They were never part of the Bible. The New Testament apocrypha were never at any time part of the New Testament. But there's another kind of exclusion. Let's say you're in the party and you're getting rowdy and the bouncers chuck you out. Now you're excluded. You were in but you lost your place. The conspiracy theorists would have us think that that's the way it actually was. You've got the 27 New Testament documents, the apostolic ones, and a lot of other ones that should have been included, but someone removed them. And that's not fair. No, they were excluded in the first sense, as in never being permitted in. Okay, now, something about the Codex. What do I mean, Codex? A Codex is a book. You know, the Jews had scrolls. Uh, in Egypt, things were written on papyrus, which grows in Egypt. But if you have enough sheets of whatever the writing material is, it can be bound together in a book form. And as the New Testament grew, it ended up, whoa, it's quite a bit. 
you know, 27 documents in our modern New Testament, 260 chapters. And so the New Testament becomes a book. And I think it still took quite a while. I, I certainly don't think that in the year uh, 101 AD, most churches had 27 documents. I don't think so. I think in the second century, a lot of churches had more than one gospel and probably a handful of letters and maybe a bit more. But it took a while, a while for everyone to have the same thing. And a codex, like a Bible, is a little bit threatening. You know, walk into a, a public place holding a, a big, fat, black Bible. Notice how people are around you. It makes quite a statement. I was just with a brother who came back from Amsterdam. He was in Holland last week. And the leader there is very smart. For the Bible discussions he leads, he prints out the notes and the scriptures. And that way they just pass out a paper with the relevant passages. And for those who don't come from a Bible background, which is like virtually all of the Netherlands <laughs> and most of the world, uh, they, they have an easier way to come at it. It's not quite so heavy, quite so threatening. I imagine as the New Testament came together, it became hard, uh, you know, uh, challenging, emotionally difficult. Uh, manuscripts are expensive. Rich people might have had whole Bibles. But before the time of the printing press, it cost money. And if you wanted to have a whole New Testament, let alone a whole Bible, that was not easy. That was expensive. But because of this process of collection, this is our, our third phase of our class, third phase of the period, um, the Codex is, if not created by the Christians, at least it's perfected by them. And that's all I'm going to say on this. Ratification. The fourth phase. Now we're in the fourth century. Early fourth century. You know, the persecution stops um, around 311. In most of the empire, the persecution stops then. And there'll be a number of councils. Often it's said that, and this is like Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, the Council of Nicaea, presided over by the pagan emperor Constantine, is where they voted on the books of the Bible. And Constantine had 88 uh, books, and they decided to chuck out 84 of them and just have four Gospels and so forth and so on. Well, it's true. The record says that Constantine commissioned 50 Bibles to be copied. Uh, presumably that would be for 50 churches around Constantinople, modern Istanbul. It doesn't actually say what books were included. I don't know whether, the, whether all of the Christian world um, had agreed yet on the entire canon, but I looked at the records of the Council of Nicaea. I don't see anything there about determining the books of the Bible. So this is just uh, it's a kind of a modern apocrypha. <laughs> it's just not true. Things were discussed, though. The church uh, historian Eusebius, for example, um, talks about different, different books. You know, and some of them uh, were accepted universally, some were universally rejected, and some were accepted with some, uh, let's say, uh, hesitation in other places. But people are definitely thinking about it. There's a council in Laodicea, 363, includes all the books of our New Testaments except Revelation. 26 out of 27. Interesting. Normally we would say the first documentary proof of every book of our Bible, our New Testament, is the Easter letter of Athanasius. Athanasius writes a letter in 367, and that has all 27. And there's a council of Carthage, in Carthage North Africa, 397, that also has those 27. But were they voting on it? They're not voting on it. 
it's, it's not a process of voting. It's a, more of a process of recognition or ratification. And to be fair, there are some parts in the far eastern empire where the book of Revelation was still suspect. They still needed more time, even after the 4th century, to accept it. But in most of the Roman world, most all the churches, the canon was settled. You'd say, yeah, but didn't they create these books? No. Ratification, think of, think of the Constitution of your country. I'm from the United States. So the Constitution was written, and it was uh, ratified uh, by state after state. Ratification is not quite the same as creation. It's not the same thing as production. Ratification is, is saying, yes, this is right. It's consistent. It makes sense. It's good. We will follow it. It's authoritative. We're in. You see, that's quite different from creating the documents or some kind of power struggle over what will be included. These things are included because of apostolicity. And as I said, um, a lot of the discussion was accelerated by the teachings of the heretics. Perhaps I should explain that word apostolicity. See, even I'm gagging on it. Apostolicity doesn't mean that every doctrine is written by an apostle. If Matthew wrote Matthew, it's actually anonymous. But if he wrote Matthew, then, then that would be apostolic in a sense. But Mark wouldn't be, because that's not written by an apostle. Oh, but Mark is with Peter, according to Papias, the second century writer. Okay, so Mark is with Peter, so it's apostolic directly or indirectly. But even then, I don't think that's quite what we mean by apostolicity. It has to do with whether the message is consistent with the message that Jesus gave to his apostles. Is it the apostolic message he gave them? So it's not related so directly to authorship as to content. Is it true? And the ring of truth was recognized in this process of ratification, and that's in the 4th century. Well, conclusion. Like the Old Testament, the New Testament came into being gradually. But not, in the, as in the case of the Old Testament, over the course of centuries, but through the course of just about five decades. More will be written by Christians after this first century, in which the New Testament is written. But unlike the Old Testament Apocrypha, the New Testament Apocrypha will never be regarded as Scripture. And that will be the subject for our next class.